This is a production of NTEU Chapter 49, representing most IRS employees in the state of Indiana. My name is Larry Landon. I'm a volunteer and also a retiree. I'm a volunteer working with Chapter 49, doing the production of this uh, podcast and and other communications items. Once again, uh, we're here with our weekly Chapter 49 podcast. And with us, as always, Duncan Giles. Always good to talk to you, Duncan. Good to have you back here. Good to be here. Always good to be here. That means I'm not dead. So that is a good thing. <laughs> well, you certainly have a way of looking at the bright side. Uh, <laughs> our guest this week is Jim Bailey. Jim Bailey is the uh, second highest elected official for the National Treasury Employees Union at the national level. He's the executive vice president just under our elected president, uh, Tony Ridden. So, Jim Bailey, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm going to let uh, Duncan Giles start the conversation. Duncan. Okay, Jim, I want to talk uh, about several things. First off, can you touch on, because of your position and being a point person a lot for negotiations, chair of communica- negotiation teams, things of that nature, on some of the efforts that NTU has made uh, to make it easier for employees during the pandemic, like uh, Maxiflex, uh, weather and safety leave, those kinds of things? Um, absolutely. I can talk about the, the role the, that NTU's played in, in, in making this, um, these options, opportunities available to employees. Uh, the work that NTU has done to, on weather and safety leave, telework, and um, expanded, even expanded Maxiflex actually started long ago. Um, I would say even decades ago. Um, if you... Um, if you've been around as long as I have, you may remember that um, the uh, there was Congress initiated a pilot program for alternative work schedules back in the early 80s. And then um, they made it uh, permanent um, later on in the mid 80s. It's called the Flexible and Compressed Work Schedules Act. NTU was a big supporter of, um, of those um, pieces of legislation. And over the years, uh, as we bargained new agreements, We've continued to expand um, AWS opportunities or options for the employees we represent. So when um, the pandemic hit, um, especially as far as Maxiflex goes, um, or the uh, expanded Maxiflex schedule, uh, it was a small step, relatively speaking, from the options that are currently available in our contract, which the IRS had gotten used to over time, to um, making that available to parents, uh, working parents who suddenly had their children home with them all the time and needed a lot more flexible work hours to attend to to the kids. Um, uh, Telework the same way. Um, We probably, NTU was probably the first union in the federal sector to bargain telework options for the employees we represented starting in the 90s. And we've continued to expand on that program um, as we have um, as we've negotiated succeeding contracts. Um, one of the things, Duncan, that you're probably quite familiar with is um, that we've really been working on is expanding telework opportunities for um, call site employees. Um, yeah, I got a little bit of familiarity with that. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> and uh, and you know it's something that we have really fought with them hard to expand. Suddenly, um, with the onset of the pandemic, boy, 
that has they they got the money in the CARES Act and that has expanded rapidly. Uh, I can assure you of this. Um, when this pandemic's over, um, when we have a vaccine, we're not going to go back to um, very limited, um, isolated telework opportunities for um, for call site employees. Um, weather and safety leave, uh, similar, but more of a more recent vintage, I'd say. Um, we negotiated uh, weather and safety leave in the last round of bargaining we did with the IRS in 2017. And we... Um, um, it was a new provision in the law. Um, um, to be honest, we bargained it with the idea of closing offices due to um, snowstorms, hurricanes, uh, you know, one-time sort of catastrophic events. But uh, weather and safety leave, as it's provided for in our contract, um, is basically available when it's not safe for you to perform work at the work site or to travel to work. And it applies in, in the case of the pandemic, um, particularly now for um, employees who don't have portable work and um, uh, can't, they're high risk and they can't safely travel to and from the office. So that's, that's a little history on those things. Uh, Jim, I think as a result of what you just said and just gave a great explanation background on weather and safety leave, um, most of the people still on that program are in the WNI Wage and Investment Division. Uh, have you received any indication from IRS when that will end? Um, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I think there are currently about um, 8,600 employees on weather and safety leave um, around the country. And um, I think, you know, the IRS understands the necessity of it. I think they're a little bit frustrated with the, um, you know, the fact that, as they put it occasionally, we're paying people not to work. But at the same time, they understand that um, it comes, uh, employee safety comes first. And um, when is it going to end? Well, A, well, maybe when there's a vaccine, that's widely available, um, available to every single person. Short of that, um, the challenge for the IRS, and this is something that we continue to push them on, is to find more ways to make work that is currently not portable, portable, so employees who are high risk and can't come in can perform that work from the safety of their homes. And I would think uh, replacing several thousand employees and training them back up was not a uh, is not a task the IRS is anxious to do either. Uh, no, they're not. Um, but um, you know, it's something that necessity is the mother of invention. And if you have to, um, you know, it's amazing when um, pressure is on to get the work out. Um, creativity increases. And um, I think it's forcing um, both parties, uh, NTU and the IRS, to come up with new ways of, um, of doing business. Duncan, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, I, I want to expand on this a little bit. If, Jim, have you heard anything about, uh, looks like SBSE, which has quite a few less folks on uh, WSL than WNI, uh, is looking at calling their folks back to work even if their work, if, if their work is portable, even if they do uh, have high risk conditions. 
Um, they haven't come out and said that yet. They may be considering that. Um, but um, right now, uh, if you're high risk, um, you are still, uh, you know, you can self-identify as being high risk and you're still entitled to, um, to, to be at home and, until it's, it's safe for you to come in. Uh, you you talked, Jim, about uh, the history of the work at home. It was, it was called Flexi Place when it was first rolled out in the 90s. Uh, I actually became a steward for NTB in the late 1980s, and uh, I traveled the state for the chapter trying to roll out and explain that what we then call the Flexi Place program, that technology wasn't anything like what we have today. I just remember traveling the state with a member of the management team who was very much on board with Flexi Place at the time, trying to get people on board. And I would say at least half of the management officials in collection and exam at that time is what we called them. Um, they're all compliance now. But at that time, there were some managers that were fine with it, but there were about half of them that absolutely were resistant to it. Um and it was a battle to be able to get people uh, on the management side, and I'm talking about the group manager level there, uh, to buy into the work-at-home option, which went from FlexiPlace to telework. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who are working for the IRS and the bargaining unit who do not understand, and I want you to – you talked about this a little bit, but I want you to expand on it, just this whole idea – about how you cannot give up on on an issue, whether it be flexible work schedules or telework, but you've got to keep pushing for it. And 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 we've seen the awards program. We've had to fight a, a huge battle just to keep it together. Although it's obviously not the way uh, the union would want it. But I I just want you to talk about how first of all how difficult it is, how the union pushes hard. I think there are some people out there that still think that some of these things are gifts of management, and they absolutely are not. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right, Larry. These, um, the law authorizes these programs, but nothing guarantees it for employees. Um, you know, if you don't have a union that bargains the right to these benefits in, in a contract, then it's totally up to management's discretion uh, as to whether or not you get it. And Larry, I remember those days when we first started negotiating these flexi-place agreements. Those were back in the old district office days when we actually had an agreement um, for each separate agreement for each district. And um, the prevailing attitude, as I recall, um, by managers, and it still exists today to some extent, is if I can't see you, you're not working. And so uh, they didn't want you, uh, they didn't trust you to be, uh, they didn't measure output. They, um, they wanted to be able to actually see you in the workplace. And you're absolutely right. We have every successive contract, we have had to, you know, fight hard to expand the occupations that are eligible for um, flexibility. Certainly telework, or excuse me, technology has helped immensely in that area. I mean, the, the electronic communication, the ability to electronically share work um, has, has helped tremendously and made more occupations eligible for it. But sometimes it's one step up, two steps back. Um, as um, administrations change, um, the uh, availability and the, the interest in, on, on the part of agencies in, te in telework 
has changed. Um, the current administration, um, there are many heads of um, executive departments who are not big fans of, of telework and have tried to really scale it back. Um, interestingly enough, uh, those agencies suddenly found themselves in a real bind with the onset of the pandemic um, and had to scramble and work a lot harder to get their workforce telework capable because of their retrenchment on this issue. So um, it, as you say, Larry, it is a constant fight. Um, you can never take it uh, for granted. Um, you got to fight to keep what you got and, and you got to fight to get more. That's just, that's the business we're in. Duncan, back to you. Uh, Jim, starting to hear some field folks that want to try and come back into the office a little bit, um, even though that that could be harmful to them. And also they're, you know, when are they going to start meeting with taxpayers regularly? And a vast majority of employees are scared a lot about that. And rightfully so, because we can take, as you know, we can take all the precautions that we can. And if a taxpayer comes in, is not taking the same precautions or attitude, could put our employees at risk. So what are you hearing about both A, being able to go into the office if needed, and B, um, about when we, they might start meeting more regularly with taxpayers? Yeah, two um, tough and, and somewhat complicated issues, Duncan, and issues that we've talked to the IRS about. We, we actually have conference calls with the IRS um, twice a week. We're going to have another one in a little over two hours from now. Um, and both of these have been issues that, that, are, that we've discussed. Um, on the first issue, employees want to come in maybe when it's not safe for them to do so. You know, I think we have to be careful about being too paternalistic and telling employees, we know what's best for you. Um, uh, you know, if employees understand the risk and they're willing to accept the risk and they feel like they need to come in, um, to do their work or do their job better, and it's completely voluntary in their part, our view is they should be allowed to do that. Right now, the IRS is a little uncomfortable with that. One yeah, of I was going to say, that's, that's not an NTU thing where we're stopping them. That's at the area director level and above. Exactly. Um, and that really is coming ultimately from the top, from the BOD level. Um, they are, uh, they're uncomfortable with it. I can understand why they may have a little, a little bit of a liability concerns there. Um, somebody comes into work, um, maybe, you know, they're worried about man managing social distancing for sure. And if you have too many employees in at the same time and you can't maintain proper social distancing and um, maybe, you know, somebody's not wearing the right, you know, the masks or there's, God forbid, somebody gets infected from coming into work, you know, they have... Workers' comp, claim gets, comp claims get filed. So it's, it's a complicated issue, um, and one we're still talking to them about. Um, as far as the field issue goes, um, I mean, I think, you know, again, it, it comes down to, in our view, safety first. And, um, you know, I think they've, they've struck the right balance right now where both the employee and the taxpayer or taxpayer rep has to be comfortable with the meeting. Um, first of all, um, but it also requires um, managerial approval um, because the meeting needs to be really absolutely necessary. And we've talked about this in our recently with SBSE and 
one of these business improvement committee meetings we had and, 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 and talked about this issue. And they made it pretty clear that they are not comfortable with these meetings and they, they should be rare um, at most. Um, again, when does that change? Well, um, when, when is there gonna be a vaccine widely available? <laughs> that's, that's when I think it starts to, that's when it comes back. And uh, that could we could be talking years. I'm I'm hearing all sorts of stories that even if a uh, a, a formula is discovered, the distribution and production uh, uh, the uh, the impediments to that are difficult. But we'll hopefully if we get a vaccine, we can worry about that. Then speaking of COVID, um, I think there are always concerns about how this is being reported. I know that uh, there have been outbreaks in some places uh, throughout the country, I, and I do uh, know that uh, you know these these processing centers in places like Kansas City and so on are places where a large number of people will work in one building. And if you have an outbreak, it, it can get serious there. I think the service is taking it seriously, based on what I'm hearing, but. There, that brings in a whole lot of other issues. Like if you have a, a verified situation where someone has tested positive in a particular workplace, it could be a small one or a large one in terms of number of employees. You know, how does the service go about making sure the cleaning is done in a, in a deep cleaning manner in a way that would meet the standards of the the CDC and other local health agencies. Talk about the issues NTEU is now dealing with in terms of talking to IRS about that side of the COVID issue. Well, there are, Larry, there are really two two sides to it. Um, One is, as you mentioned, the the deep cleaning issue. Um, We've had uh, extensive conversations with them about that. Basically, what the IRS does is follow um, CDC protocols. If you're interested in seeing those, CDC, those protocols, you can go to the CDC website, um, the same protocols that are out there for every business. And, um, you know, generally speaking, if um, somebody um, tests positive and they have been in the workplace recently, if they haven't been in the workplace, there's no concern, obviously. But if they've been in the workplace recently, um, they should um, shut down, clear, clear out that immediate work area that that employee has been in for 24 hours, thoroughly clean that, and then clean all the so-called high-touch or common areas where that employee has been or may have been. Um, they've gotten a little more sophisticated and precise about how they go about this than what they were doing initially when Basically, we didn't know a lot about the virus. I recall one of the first reported infections um, in Indianapolis where, uh, and this was in, I think in March, um, they shut down the entire facility and sent everybody home, if I'm not mistaken. For days. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Um, I started drinking heavily since then. Yeah. uh, Their approach is a little more measured and, and precise now. So that's... Um, that's the, the, the cleaning protocol that, and, and there are times when they don't follow it and we, we call them on it. But the other piece of this is just notification of employees, um, that there's been, uh, somebody that's tested positive that's been in the workplace and you have to strike a balance between protecting the privacy of the individual, um, who, 
has become infected because that is private information and it's unlawful for the IRS to disclose their identity. Um, but at the same time, how do you employees in general have an interest in knowing that um, they'll oftentimes hear secondhand that there has been somebody who's tested positive, who's been in the workplace, and you have to give them enough information where you don't cause a panic. We've had some recent situations where, um, for example, in Fresno, where management just sent out a, a general notice to all employees that said um, somebody had tested positive in the workplace. Nothing more than that. Well, that's worse than sending out any notice at all, because everybody's wondering, is it my coworker? Was it did I interact with this person? And so we've had some discussions with the IRS about how do you strike that balance to give employees enough information to let them know that there was a positive test because they're going to find out anyways, but also let them know that it's being addressed and hopefully that it wasn't in their particular area. And I think we've we've. We're making progress on that. Okay, Duncan, yours again. Uh, yeah, well, I just want to follow up real quick on that one with Jim. It's like one of the problems, I think, is just the nature of how long it takes to get a test result back. People are upset going, well, they, you know, they, they've been in here and it's been seven days. And why, why did they just notify us now? Well, unfortunately, because, you know, it's, it's much easier now to get a test, but getting the results are a whole thing entirely different. And it just takes so long to get those. We're just not getting to be able to be as on top of it as we want. And that's just the nature of the system, I think. Uh, exactly right. Um, but if somebody is um, um, even, you know, in the workplace and they're symptomatic, um, they should, the IRS should err on the side of caution, clean that area out. And, and I mean, have the employees leave that area um, and thoroughly clean it before anybody comes back in that area. Another right, related... Another related issue that's, you know, issue related to um, how long it takes to get um, test results back is um, if, uh, you know, say, for example, you've been um, exposed, you know, you've had exposed exposure to somebody, close exposure and maybe even unprotected exposure to somebody who's been diagnosed as positive um, and yet you're asymptomatic. They send you home for testing. Um, you know, they put you on weather and safety leave because you're not ill at that point. Um, and, um, but it takes a while to get the test results back. What's your leave status while you're waiting for that extended period of time to get test results back or you're self-quarantining? Um, and we've had to um, fight with the IRS a little bit about that to ensure that employees get weather and safety leave and aren't forced to use their own sick leave during that period. Uh, what about being a high-risk employee? Um, my understanding is, and I'm no health professional, is that uh, the CDC has updated those standards uh, on a regular basis. Let's say you are working in a post of duty, maybe a small one. You are of a certain age or have health risks or maybe a combination of both, but you have chosen to come into work. How are you going to be able to deal some some of these duties, particularly in the smaller offices where somebody has to deal with the mail, for example? Uh, how how are you discussing with the with the, the management how these sorts of situations should be handled, and is the service working with you on that? They are, you know, Larry. I mean, as just starting with the definition of a high risk 
employee. I mean, if you go to the CDC website, that definition is, if not fluid, malleable. It's, I mean, it's, um, I, I, I mean, I've looked at that definition at times and thought, you know, and, and the IRS has even admitted this. I mean, they could say easily 30% of our workforce falls into the high risk category. Um, and arguably even more. You could even push it to 50% when you look at all the, 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 the factors. Um, so, you know, it, these, because of that, these, these situations really, I mean, there are some hard and fast rules. I mean, if you're high risk um, and your work is importable, they, they can't force you to come in. They, they, they agree with that right now. Um, but because of, you know, the, the multiplicity of factors that go into this, you, you almost have to deal with these situations on, on a case-by-case basis. And that, in turn, requires um, flexibility on the part of frontline managers, but it also requires, and, and too often this is in short supply, communication and discussions with the employee's chapter representatives um, who have their interests at heart. That's how we try to approach it. Um, the IRS being the sort of top-down organization that it is right now, um, they don't oftentimes trust their managers to make the right decisions. And so they want to lay out all types of rules for every single situation. If you look at the number of their ever-growing FAQs that they put out, um, it's, you know, they, they want to have a rule for every situation. And, and sometimes that's just not possible. And, and you need some intelligent discussion at the local level. And, and we're pushing on them to do more and more of that. I'm going to ask one more question, then ask uh, Duncan to wrap it up. But uh, as we are recording this, the funeral of J- uh, Congressman John Lewis is, is underway. And uh, the story of John Lewis is, is an amazing story. A man willing to put his physical health at risk to change the old Jim Crow South and the segregation policies that I remember so well uh, because I'm 68 years old. I I lived through that. My parents traveled in the South. I saw that system up close and personal, and it was an awful system. But he went to Congress, did wonderful things there, and was a very specific friend of the entire federal workforce and NTEU in particular. I just wanted to give you a chance to, to speak about Congressman John Lewis. Well, I would. Um, the, the, I don't know what more I can add, really, to what you've said, Larry. I had the pleasure of um, actually meeting with uh, Congressman Lewis um, a couple of uh, legislative conferences ago, and um, actually have a picture hanging on my wall with Tony, um, me, and and the, and the congressman. Um, I mean, the, the gentleman had done so much for the. Uh, um, I mean, for all Americans um, and putting the issues of, um, of, of, of race relations and civil rights just on the front burner. Um, read an article the other day that indicated that the, the very bridge that he was beaten so badly on may now. Um, excuse me, I get a little emotional when I talk about this, um, but uh, is going to may now be changed and named in his honor. And um, I mean, what uh, what a deserving thing! Um, it's um, his loss is, is is terrible, but I'll tell you, the legacy he's left for all of us is um, we're going to benefit from forever. 
Yeah, if Alabama changes the name of that bridge, that will say a lot about where Alabama has come from that awful time when, when that happened uh, years ago. Duncan, uh, let you wrap this up. Yeah, I just want to first off thank Jim for appearing. Uh, Jim and I have known each other a very long time. Um, so I'm always surprised when people I've known a long time agree to do this. Um, <laughs> uh, but on a, on a uh, more serious note, a close friend of Jim and mine, a fellow chapter president, uh, recently lost a son. And, you know, the, this is a guy that I'm sure Jim feels the same way. If he needed anything, I would hop a plane and be there in, in a second. And I know he'd be the same with me. And he's just a great guy. And it's a terrible loss. But it reminds you, you know, don't ever take your loved ones for granted. Your children, your spouses, your parents, you could lose them at any time. Make sure that you, you hold them close Tell them how much they appreciate them and tell them how much you love them because you just never know. And Larry, if I could um, make a comment here, um, I understand you're going to, you're a grandparent to be or a, a grandparent again to be. I don't know. No, it's my but first, I, first time. All right. Well, I want to um, just congratulate you on well, that. Well, thank you very much. Yes, my my daughter lives about a day's drive from where I live, so we're trying to time this out the right way. I have uh, two daughters, twins, and one lives near us. The other lives in South Dakota, and she's the one that's preparing. They don't want to know the sex of the baby until until uh, it happens, but we could happen any time between now and about the, the middle of August. So uh, thank you for that thought. Very kind of you to do that. I'm very much looking forward to to be a grandparent as my wife is. So uh, thanks for the thought. And and really, I want to echo what uh, Duncan said. We always appreciate so many of you folks in the national headquarters have agreed to be on our podcast. We very much appreciate that and appreciate your time and, and everything you do there. So uh, I will uh, wrap it up there. Anything you want to add before we go, Duncan? Nope. I just, uh, you know, everybody stay safe out there and, uh, be careful and and you know like I say love love your your family and also love your fellow man all right thank you duncan giles jim bailey thank you again so much uh for joining us you illuminated us on a number of issues and we really appreciate that and uh, my name's larry lannon we'll be back uh, next week with another chapter 49 podcast <laughs>